I wrote a friend this week concerning suffering from grief. Grief is hard. Oh boy, do I know. I am so sad without dawn. I miss my grief support group. I miss seeing my congregation. I miss seeing my mother. So I pray extra hard for all who are heartbroken and in grief right now. So many are suffering. The book of Job is a book for the suffering. It is written for those who have lost loved ones in recent days. It is written for those who have lost jobs and those suffering from poor health. It is written for the angry people who fear for their freedom more than they fear from the health, for the health of their neighbor. It is written for the sinful, which last time I checked includes all of us. Today we ask how shall we answer God as He questions us. This is nothing but grace. Nothing but grace is a time for worship and Bible study that will inspire your heart and give you good news. Hi, I'm Dr. Chuck McGathy, a fellow traveler on Life's Highway, a highway that has gotten rather bumpy lately. I will be sharing with you today part two of my sermons on the book of Job. You will also be hearing Bible study led by the Reverend Marsha McQueen. Finally, I'd like to share with you a part of my message I presented recently at the funeral of a friend who passed away from complications of COVID-19. So stay tuned. I believe God has a message for you today. I want to invite you to take communion with us on Sunday, October 4th. The first Sunday of October is World Communion Sunday. That day is the day when Christian churches all around the world will celebrate the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Through this act, we acknowledge our common union or communion with the universal church of Jesus Christ. We also remind ourselves that the sacrifice of Christ brings us grace to live in peace and reconciliation with God and with one another. This year, a worldwide pandemic will not prevent the celebration of our faith. We will follow our Lord's command to do this in remembrance of me. Even though we cannot gather, we can take communion together by preparing ahead of time. There are two ways you can prepare for the moment in the worship on October 4th, next Sunday, when we will celebrate the body given and the blood shed for the redemption of the world. One way is to set aside a bit of bread, any kind will do, and a bit of grape juice or wine, whichever you prefer. Another option is to come by the church office anytime, day or night. Just outside the door, there are sanitary communion sets available for free. Take as many as you need. These are little cups filled with grape juice, and on top is a small bread wafer. Our church is located at 110 South Franklin Street in Madison, North Carolina. The office entrance is located directly across from the Dollar General Store. While you come by, be sure and pick up your free copy of Nurturing Faith Journal. I invite you to learn more about the faith that sustains you. Come by the church office anytime, day or night. There you can receive a free copy 
of the September-October Nurturing Faith Journal and Bible Study available for you in a plastic bin on a table just outside our office door. If for some reason you cannot come to receive your copy but want one, write me at C.P. McGathy, that's spelled C-P-M-C-G-A-T-H-Y at yahoo.com or call the church office and leave a message at phone number 336-548-6112. Please consider us your friend and let us know about you. The message today is connected to the sermon from last week. That message entitled, A Question of God, considered the way God responded to the questions of a suffering person named Job. Instead of answering why, he turns the question to Job. He wants to elicit from him trust in spite of his circumstances. Today we will conclude by pondering the answer Job gave to God. It is recorded for us in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Herein I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The beginning of the book of Job describes a heavenly scene that is both intriguing and disturbing. The reader is immediately drawn into a heavenly conversation, imagined not witnessed, that depicts God as toying with humanity for his own validation. We wonder, is that what God really is like? Is that how unexplainable suffering begins? To read those first chapters as theology, that which teaches us about God, is, I think, a mistake. The story probably was a well-known tale designed to help explain the divine role in human suffering. It represents the common wisdom while it also challenges it. On the one hand, human beings have always tended to view suffering as somehow deserved, the just deserts for sin. But as the book of Job begins, the heavenly drama depicts yet another possibility. This scenario describes a God who takes a bet from the Satan. I use the article the to precede Satan because that is the actual rendering of this passage in its original language. This heavenly foil is not the devil spoken of in the New Testament. Here, the word hasatan literally means the accuser. His charge that Job's faithful service to God only exists because he is handsomely rewarded. But the Satan asked God what would happen if Job were deprived of his wealth, his health, and his family. Would he still serve God under those conditions? This then is the setup to the true teaching. It serves merely as a backdrop to the actual theology that flows forth from the remainder of the book. It is a way to ask the question, is all suffering somehow deserved? Have you ever wondered why bad things happen to good people? That was the title Rabbi Harold Kushner gave to his best-selling book. It also articulates the key question of the book of Job. How is it that a good and all-powerful God would permit the innocent to suffer? 
In some of the finest poetic literature ever composed, the book of Job argues against easy answers. Unlike the opening chapters, God's role and purpose in Job's suffering, indeed all human suffering, is not clear. The main section of the book is an ongoing conversation, a debate between Job and his three closest friends. One implication from the four-way conversation is that while God is listening, he is not speaking. In the meanwhile, the debate heats up between the suffering Job and his three friends. Their argument, in essence, boils down to this. Since God is righteous and just and powerful, the only logic in Job's downfall is that he must deserve it. Job's friends do not argue this way because they do not love their friend, but because the prospect of a God who somehow lacks righteousness, justice, or power is unacceptable. But Job opposes his accu their accusations. He insists he is innocent. He has done nothing to deserve his lot. At last, God speaks. Last week, I focused on, this, on his questions of Job. God never explains the reason for Job's troubles. We are left with an open question. Does God have a reason for Job's travails, or does God allow randomness in suffering, the rain that falls on the just and the unjust? Either way, human suffering understood within these concepts defies simplistic explanations. It begins to appear that the real, ultimate meaning of pain is not its justice or injustice, but our response to it. God is looking for our humanity, calling it forth from the darkness and the disasters that overwhelm us. When I graduated from high school in Winter Park, Florida, the next day, the very next morning, our family piled into our two cars and we left the state to move to Texas. It was a great adventure, but it had a downside as well. I lost contact with most of my friends. I returned to Central Florida almost 20 years later with a wife and two children wearing the stripes of a lieutenant commander. In the 19 years since graduation, I had gone to sea, lived in the Mojave Desert, and in two foreign countries. To be honest, I had forgotten many of my friends from my teenage years. But now, I found myself stationed at the Naval Training Center, which actually was right next door to my old high school. This change of scenery affected me as it brought back memories and faces of people I had known long ago. Every day, it seemed, was a new stroll down memory lane. Finding my old Tandeli, our high school yearbook, I began to look up faces of long-ago friends. And then I tried to find out what had happened in their lives. When I came to Sally, I found that I remembered her, a statuesque blonde. Sally had everything going for her. I knew her in school, but most of all through the youth group at First Baptist Church. Sally was not only an attractive person physically, she was beautiful on the inside, too. She was a friendly and pleasant and caring person. But I did not know the depth of that until I began to investigate how the ensuing years had treated her.
My reintroduction to Sally came when I saw that she was a spokesperson for a local benevolence, the purpose of which was to raise money for research to fight a disease that took the lives of young children. Sally, looking as beautiful as ever, had married well. She seemed to have it all, looks, intelligence, prosperity, respect in the community. But then I began to learn one other detail, something I did not know upon preliminary investigation. Sally had lost a child to a terrible disease, and she now worked tirelessly to discover the cure. I learned that the days of lingering illness that slowly took her daughter had nearly crippled my friend in sorrow and in grief. Surely she must have asked, Why, God? And I think her experience, Job-like in its pain, left her without an answer. Could it be, I wondered, that Sally, like Job, came to that critical juncture where she knew the questions were not for God, but for her? How would she respond? What answer would she give to God? Well, I can tell you that the answer many would give in that circumstance would be bitterness and anger. Why didn't the doctors catch this before it was too late? Why is it that the other mothers who seemingly care so little for their children are blessed while I'm deprived of my only child? Where is God in all of this? Does he even care? And I guess that at some point, Sally might too have asked some or all of these questions, but she did not stop there, caught in a depressive cycle of self-pity and loathing. Sally decided to give an answer back to God, an answer provided by Job centuries ago, an answer that requires faith and courage. In the words of Job, even though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Instead of allowing the death of her child to crush her, she took her pain and she devoted her energies to trying to help other parents who were or would be facing the same fate. She could not avoid her own suffering, but she could perhaps help others to suffer less. The beautiful and personable Sally I knew in high school was a fountain of spiritual strength and hope. Her life became her answer to God. In his commentary on Job, Rabbi Kushner tells a beautiful story. In trying to grasp its message, he evaluated the words of one theologian. This learned individual proposed the idea that in some way the message of Job is a finding of our humanity. What does it mean to be truly human? The answer was quite profound and worth deep consideration. To be human is to attempt to find meaning in our pain, to have it make sense in one way or another. Yet as he pondered it, Rabbi Kushner discovered a better answer provided by another commentator. Her answer to the question, what makes us truly human is deeper what makes us truly human, she wrote, is our efforts to alleviate the suffering of others. Job finally, through all of his painful questioning of God, understands that the question is put to him. 
In this magnificent response, he admits that God is God, that God knows and does things that are beyond our ability to understand. Once he admits that, Job gains new insight. As he describes it, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Spiritual insight like this doesn't come cheap and it doesn't come easy. Job was not repenting because he suddenly realized that his friends were right, that he had committed some vile sin for which he was being punished. No, he repented He turned away from an attitude. And in so doing, he discovered he could have faith and hope in God, even though his outward circumstances were miserable. It is a realization found again and again in the pages of Scripture where God promises, I will turn their mourning into joy, and I will comfort them. In Psalms 126, verse 5, we read, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. In Isaiah 25, 8, it says, He will swallow up death and victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all their faces. Jesus promised, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And regarding his purpose, he quoted Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Jesus came to suffer so that through him we might find our way, our humanity. He calls us to follow him by alleviating the suffering of others. In this, we discover more than our humanity. We discover the depth of our salvation. In comforting those who mourn, we somehow lessen our own grief. In bringing good tidings to the poor, we are enriched. In binding up the brokenhearted, we are healed. In providing justice for the oppressed, we are vindicated. What will your answer be to God? Each one of us has disappointment, loss, a disaster or two that has left us asking, why God? But God wants us to know this. God wants to know what you will say, what you will do. He wants to know if you will trust him. And he wants more than words. He wants you to move with faith right into the pain of others. He wants your humanity expressed through your faithfulness as you care and love others. As the book of Job concludes, Job's fortunes turn around once again. That is not the point of the book, but it does remind us that God is God in the good times and in the not-so-good times. The point is always trust. In the end, it was Job's trust that got him through, and it will get you and me through just as well. 
Will you bow your head and pray with me now? Lord, we confess that we do not possess all knowledge or power. We admit that we are not God and that we need you. We are but finite creatures given the gift of learning and the opportunity for faith. You have given us a way through our pain. Comfort us in our pain and help us to comfort others in your name. In you we will rejoice. Amen. Many people will remember the music of the artist Barry McGuire, who sang the chart-topping hit Eve of Destruction many years ago. But he also contributed his soul to other lesser-known songs. Here is one that I think perfectly captures the heart of Job's experience, and I offer it to you now as a time of prayer and contemplation. As you walk with sorrow, following this music, Reverend Marsha McQueen will lead us in our Bible study. Let's now listen to Mile with Sorrow. I'm having a little bit of a technical problem here with my song, so we'll go right to our Bible study with Marcia. We continue this week with our Bible study based on the Nurturing Faith curriculum written by Dr. Tony Cartledge, a professor at Campbell University Divinity School. There is a link to the online version of this journal on our church website which you've already heard earlier in the broadcast, www.firstbaptistchurchofmadison.org. You can access the online journal with the password provided on our website. Our scripture for today is Psalm 25, 1 through 10, entitled, Deliver Me, Lord. All this month and next, we're studying the theme, a prayer list for today. So far, that prayer list has included teach me, forgive me, convict me, and continues today with deliver me, Lord. In the fashion of a school teacher, which I used to be, I want to give you a listening assignment before I read the text. Listen to see if you can find answers to these questions. Why can the psalmist be as free as he wants to be when he shares with God? Why do we need God's help to stay on the right path? Why do you believe you need to be forgiven? And why do you want others to know what they can receive? from the Lord God. From the New Revised Standard Version, Psalm 25, verses 1 through 10. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies exult over me. 
Do not let those who wait for you be put to shame. Let them be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your paths, O Lord. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Be mindful of your mercy, O Lord, and of your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his decrees. Is this a psalm of lament or of trust? Most scholars classify it as an individual prayer of lament, but it differs from typical laments. Most psalms of lament arise from times of distress when the poet cries out for deliverance from illness or from violent enemies. The distress in this psalm comes from the poet's personal failings and his desire to be forgiven lest he be put to shame. Like many psalms of lament, it contains a strong element of trust that God will hear the prayer and act in his mercy to deliver, vindicate, or forgive the petitioner. This psalm is one that's considered poetry. It is an acrostic designed with each couplet beginning with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Such careful construction gives evidence that this is a literary creation rather than a spontaneous prayer. Because of this, this psalm wanders about from one thing to another and then back again. That is because of its design to have couplets going in alphabetical order. So I want to separate these segments and I will reread the text for each segment. We'll look first at verses 1 through 3. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Do not let those who wait for you be put to shame. Let them be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. These verses emphasize that repentance involves bearing our souls. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. To address Yahweh as O Lord is to be reminded of the covenant name 
of the intimate and personal nature of this prayer. And you may remember from a couple of weeks ago that the word for soul, nephish, means one's essence, one's whole being. So laying your soul before the Lord is to go as deep as we can go. Such a, a bearing of our souls involves disclosure, revelation, transparency, total honesty. That first listening assignment question, why can the psalmist be as free as he wants to be when he shares with God, is because he trusts God to hear with understanding and to respond with care. God can be trusted with our innermost fears, thoughts, confessions, even our questions and doubts. The psalmist in these verses is pleading for God to spare him humiliation in front of his enemies, but rather to shame those who are deceitful and disloyal. You'll notice there's no clue as to the specific sins he committed, and that's to our benefit because we're less likely to be distracted by the psalmist's sins and more likely to think of the sins that plague our own consciousness, our own conscience and consciousness, perhaps. The second li li listening question, why do we need God's help to stay on the right path? is, of course, sin. Even though we do it, we don't like to talk about it. Not only do we not like to talk about it, we don't even like to say what it's called, sin. We all do it. We can't avoid it. Avoid it. But even that little word brings up so much emotion and baggage that we sometimes get stuck and do everything we can to not talk about sin. In the passage we look at today, we acknowledge our sin by going to God for forgiveness. No matter how we say sin, we need to pray for forgiveness. This psalm could be our first step. Sins and transgressions are used um, in this text when translating from the Hebrew. In um, verse 7, excuse me, lost my place here. In verse 7, um, the word comes from the word for sin comes from a verb that means to miss the mark or to stray. If the subject were an arrow, it would mean that the archer missed the target. If the subject is life, it means that the person has gone off that straight path and done wrong. So the typical translation is to sin. 
But then the word translated as transgressions comes from a verb that means to rebel, to revolt. So it suggests a more willful decision to disobey, to choose to go one's own way. We have many synonyms for sin. Evil, offense, wrongdoing, wickedness, unrighteousness, immorality, impiety, and on we could go. We've made bad choices, taken wrong turns, and generally messed up as humans. Furthermore, Scripture says to him who knows to do good and doesn't, that too is sin. We all sin. Verses 4 and 5. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Notice in these verses the psalmist asks for divine guidance in four different ways. First, make me to know your ways. Secondly, teach me your paths. Three, lead me in your truth. And four, which is simply teach me. The psalmist likely knows the commandments and the laws, much like we do. But the psalmist is longing for guidance in dealing with everyday situations that aren't covered by the laws. The, the lesson writer reminds us that God may not care what we have for dinner tonight, but larger decisions or moral judgments call for deeper reflection. Do we make choices simply by thinking about our own personal preferences about how we spend our time, our money, and our energy? Or do we stop to ask for God's guidance, for direction, and to determine priorities? So the psalmist is asking in numerous ways, guide me. Then in verses 6 and 7, we go back to the issue of sin, though we've not totally left it. These verses say, Be mindful of your mercy, O Lord, and of your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For your goodness sake, O Lord. Do we want God to remember us? We want him to remember us, but selectively. We want him to forget our past sins and look at us in the light of God's own mercy and faithful love. God might remember someone because punishment is in order, or he might remember the obedient by bestowing blessings. We'd rather God not remember our past failures. Knowing that we have not earned God's forgiveness and favor, 
we appeal to God to remember his mercy, his love, and his goodness. Why do we believe we need to be forgiven? Jesus reminded his followers that if they expected God to forget and forgive their sins, they would need to act in the same way toward others. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So when we consider our lives, on what basis dare we ask God to remember us? Are we willing to not remember past wrongs of others in order to live with generous grace toward them in the present? Are we aware of how much happier and healthier we would be if we could not remember past wrongs? Verses 8 to 10 switch from a prayer to God to a testimony of praise for God's goodness. It's somewhat hymn-like. Let's listen to those final verses. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his commandment and his decrees. The psalmist here is testifying. He is praising God for having heard his prayer and for being good and upright, trustworthy and merciful. That fourth question why do you want others to know what they can receive from the Lord God? Might cause us to pause, to think. Why do I want others to know the benefits of the Lord God? Dr. Cartledge answers that question well. I want to quote him. We want others to believe that they can also turn from their transgressions and experience undeserved but wondrous grace and then commit to a better way. Peter Craigie, another commentary, suggests that the psalm might better be classified as a prayer of confidence. And he says this about trust and the psalmist. Quote, he trusts because God is faithful as the God of the covenant promises him to be. The psalmist trusts because those who have trusted in the past have experienced the presence and the help of God. Trust, then, is neither naive and misplaced confidence, nor is it self-confidence. Trust is a human response to God's self-revelation in personal relationship and in history. Both 
to the individual and to the community of faith, end quote. John Durham, a seminary professor and a contributor to the Broadman Commentary of years ago, summarizes the message of this psalm in this way. It was the conviction of the poet of Psalm 25 that trust placed in God is well placed, and his desire was thus a fuller knowledge of God's ways so that he might trust more and more by following in God's ways. His prayer is for protection, guidance, forgiveness, and deliverance. And his lesson is one of faith and consequent action. Both his prayer and that lesson of faith and action remain much needed. End quote. Think now about the type of relationship you want with God. Do you want a revolving door relationship of the repetition of disobedience, repentance, forgiveness, and restoration, followed again by disobedience, repentance, forgiveness, and restoration? Or do you want a relationship of repentance, forgiveness, and transformation by following the ways of God? Or, do you want a relationship that covers just the basics to ensure that when the time comes, God has you covered? Or as some today might say, God's got your back. How intimate are you willing to become with God for your own faithfulness and discipleship? How willing are you to trust God no matter what? and no matter what you have done. Dr. Cartledge on an accompanying video closes with this challenging invitation. If we would take this text seriously, this coming week would be a good time to take inventory of our life for the things for which we need forgiveness. Maybe from some other person, maybe from God. Perhaps this might be the week in which we recognize areas where we have fallen short. Whether it's our sin of prejudice or apathy, pride or greed, think about areas in which we need to repent. You and I, as individuals, as a faith community, as those who claim to be followers of Christ. And then consider praying a prayer asking God for forgiveness and accepting the gift of grace God has to offer. He says, if we will do this before the week is over, we just might be humming amazing grace. Let's close with a prayer. Loving God, we admit that we are sinners. 
We confess that because of our sin, we're embarrassed and don't want to talk about it. But we know that you love us so much that you're ready and willing to forgive. We need to come to you and confess. Help us to do that, for we want to be closer to you in spite of our faults. Thank you for loving us, O oh Lord. Amen. Well, folks, that is a wonderful Bible study once again presented by our very own Marsha McQueen, and we thank her for her insights and her study. I want to let you know that we have resolved our technical difficulty and we will play A Mile with Sorrow or I Walked a Mile by Barry McGuire at the end of this broadcast today. So thanks to Christian, the operator here, who has found a way to uh, add that song onto our broadcast. This is a tough time and funerals have been a difficulty because we cannot attend as we used to. And uh, I recently had a funeral that I did that I'm sure many would have liked to have come to but could not. I want to share a little bit of that funeral with you because I think there's some words that we all need to hear. I shared this recently at the death of a young friend who passed away from complications of COVID-19. There is a story told in the Gospel of John that I feel God's Holy Spirit urging me to share with you today. Before I read it, though, I want to set the context so you'll understand what was going on. Jesus was fully human. He felt what we feel. He knew what it was like to lose someone you love. One of the people who Jesus loved was a man named Lazarus. Lazarus had two sisters named Mary and Martha, and the words of the scripture indicate that they were all close friends. One day Jesus, who was some hours away, received word that Lazarus was sick. Further alarming reports reached him that Lazarus was dying, but by the time Jesus arrived, it was too late. Lazarus had not only died, but his funeral was over and he had been placed into a tomb. Sometimes our emotions get the best of us. It did that to Martha. At losing her brother, she let loose her anger upon Jesus. Yet even in her anger, there was a flickering flame of belief, the hope that somehow Jesus could change things, somehow, some way. Now let me read you the actual words of the Bible from John chapter 11. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe. 
I suspect you know the rest of the story. Jesus tells them to roll back the stone from the rock-hewn tomb. Then he commands new life into the body of his friend. It was a resurrection of one man and a statement of resurrection for all people of all time. That is what was recorded by John and affirmed by the other gospel writers and embraced by the Christ-following people who would eventually be called Christians. What I want each one of us to hear right now is that question of Jesus. It is not just his question for Martha, but for all humankind. It is a question addressed to you. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Let me share with you a personal story of my own grief. Most of you know that recently my wife Dawn passed away, but you may not realize that I was married once before and my first wife, named Susan, died also. I was at that time a Navy commander serving as a chaplain in San Diego, California. I was a minister in uniform, but I had not done a single funeral since Susan's death. Moreover, I had deep concerns if I would ever be able to preach again like I used to. It was as if something had been removed from my soul. On Sunday mornings, I went through the motions, presenting sermons I had on file, but always when I was done, I felt relieved it was over for another week. At last it came my turn to do a funeral for a Navy veteran who I did not know personally, but who had requested his service be facilitated by a Navy chaplain. Dutifully, I put on my dress blues and reported for my assignment at the funeral home chapel where the ceremony was to take place. I'm sure no one that day knew of the sorrow and grief that filled my heart. Neither were they aware that I could not come up with any original thoughts for that service. I had found an old funeral message I had used years before. I figured no one would know. When the service was done, I would again feel relief that it was all over. The grieving family gathered together and I began the service. As I looked into their faces, I saw people, people just like me, who had lost someone they dearly loved. I wondered if anything I could say that day would make any difference in their lives, and to be quite honest, I doubted it would. I began the service with the reading of the obituary, a meaningful song selected by the family, and then some pre-written prayers, not specific to the people, but generally appropriate. At last, it came time for my remarks. I began my sermon as planned, but then I came to the scripture passage, the same passage I just read to you a moment ago. When I came to that one part, when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I stopped. It was as if I had been thunderstruck by my own sermon. I paused 
for what I know must have been an uncomfortable length of time. To this day, I wonder if any in that congregation that day wondered what was wrong. Had I forgotten my speech? Was I suffering a medical condition that was preventing me from going on? Was something happening in the background, a disturbance that caused the chaplain to hesitate? The answer was none of the above. What was happening at that moment was I was confronting Jesus, or better put, he was confronting me. He was asking me, do you believe this? It was at that moment I knew he was saying to me, I know your wife has died, and with it something in you has died too. But I am the resurrection and the life. She lives and you must live too. Do you believe this? As I looked up from my prepared comments, I saw the eyes of everyone in that chapel fixed firmly upon me. And right then I put my faith on the line. I departed from the script. I said to everyone, I said to God, I really do believe this. I had reached a turning point. My grief did not suddenly go away. In fact, I still grieve the loss of my first wife, only compounded now by the loss of my second wife. I will have to live with an empty ache in my heart for the rest of my days. I know that. But I also know this. I can live with that pain because I believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So let me ask you, do you believe this? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we need you to speak to us just as you spoke to a broken-hearted Martha. We need you to instill within us the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. Help us to look with faith into your eyes and take your hand and believe. And we can believe because you have conquered death and the grave. So help us. Help us believe in you. Amen. Thank you for tuning into this worship and study time each Sunday. Your support and love are deeply appreciated. I also want everyone to know you may listen anytime to this broadcast or recommend it to a friend by going to our website at www.firstbaptistchurchofmadison.org. May God bring you comfort and love and mercy. I'm Dr. Chuck McGathy, and I mean it when I remind you, in the end, no matter what comes your way, there's nothing but grace. We will end with two songs. We will end with our choir singing Abide With Me, arranged by Brian Hansen and the Barry Maguire's I Walked a Mile with Sorrow. <laughs>